welcome back to another Coffee and Heroes podcast as you're joining us once again for our weekly review show. We're going to be going over the releases from the 31st of March. Uh, it was an interesting week in terms of the store and that our delivery arrived in two parts. Um, we got half the stuff on Tuesday, on Monday sorry, and half the stuff on Wednesday, but you know, they never make it easy for us. And then here we are again in Easter week. But we can blame that on the Easter holidays anyway. So, as ever, Alan, your host, uh, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast. Delighted to be joined, as always, by Keith. How are you? I am good. I've enjoyed a nice uh, four-day weekend. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, thanks to the Easter holidays. So that was nice. Got out for a, a bit of a, a bit of a mountain walk in mid-Ulster, which was nice. Um and yeah, just had a just had a real chilled out chilled out sort of a time. Uh, read a lot of comics yesterday. Uh, I'm back at work today, and the magic of a, a four day weekend is that last week was a short week, and this week is a short week at work. So the weekend will be running around before too long. Excellent. And how about yourself, Paddy? How are you? I am very well. Same as Keith. Had a nice nice four day weekend. I went for Monday and Tuesday instead. Uh, sunburnt on Saturday and frostbit today. Uh, we went up to Galvorum Castle on Saturday with Carrie's nieces. There's a bit of a, a furry trail up there. Kids love it, and it was an absolute cracking day. Now I've ginger skin, so I'll get I'll get sunburn reading holiday brochure. So on the way back, Carrie just went, "Put your face is awful red," and lo and behold, it yeah, I got a bit of bit of sunburn and freezing today. Yeah, I mean, we like to joke that Belfast inevitably, and Northern Ireland in general, inevitably can fit four seasons in one day, but we are once again proved that that is indeed reality in the last couple of days. I can't really say much. I haven't really left the house between uh, getting stuff ready for our click and collect reopening next week. and Woohoo! Oh, yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, between getting that done, I've done a lot of reading myself as well. I've you know, kicked off Omnibus 3 of Invincible. I... I read a 15-issue Detective Comics run uh, that I'd never read before by David Lapham called City of Crime, which is pretty excellent as well. It's probably the closest to Batman title. As weird as this is going to sound, given the Frank Miller's written Batman, but it's the closest Batman title to Gotham being a substitute for Sin City. It's very much that whole, the city is alive and she's screaming and she's crying and all this kind of stuff. But it was a really, really good title. I've ordered in uh, deluxe editions of the graphic novel collection as well. So we've got those to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, just keeping busy as, as much as possible. Looking forward to that reopening and uh, also to getting my house back. So yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off as we always do. Just a little bit of a look through the comics, TV, movie world and anything else that catches the odd attention. There was the news this week that uh, Marvel's new Predator title has been delayed. Now, this is a bit of a shame simply because the first Alien issue was so great. It was very high uh up on our it was your pick of the week i believe keith wasn't it, uh, was it? you know we were really happy with it it sold really well but for one reason or another it's been delayed now have they given a new date now it was originally going to be putting out in may um it says it did say it'll be all these predator products will be scheduled for release sometime in november but it hasn't actually they haven't actually rescheduled yeah, that's, um, that's a big delay. Big. Delay. That is a big delay. Disappointingly, disappointingly. So, um, so I guess we'll just we'll just see what what happens. There's there's some uh, rumor going about that the delay might be due to the the, the change in from Diamond to Penguin uh, starting. You know, I think that starts in October. 
and I think because they they think that Predator is going to be a fairly big hit, they're maybe delaying it so that Penguin can distribute it rather than Diamond distribute it. Something along those lines. I don't know. Um, but uh, and and whether or not that if that is the case, whether or not that'll hit other titles uh, as well, it's it's hard to say. Marvel just take the next six months off now that Keenan Black is coming to an end this week. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But uh, yeah, I mean. I, to me, I just looked at it as maybe they just weren't maybe happy with the quality of Predator number one, given that Alien was so well received. I remember something similar happening with DC with when they did No Justice, and then there was three Justice League titles to spin out of it. You had JL, you had Justice League Dark, and Justice League Odyssey, and I think they got as far ahead as three issues in the Justice League Odyssey, and the top brass basically went scrap it and start again. And you were supposed to have these three titles coming out in the same month. And then Just League Odyssey didn't come out to like four months later. So it could be a quality control issue. But then again, as you say, it might just be a simple finance thing. Maybe they want a, a big title to launch their new partnership as well with Penguin Random House. So we'll wait and see. Of course, in the most important news of the week, Nightwing's new Doggo got named. This was <laughs> We were all on tender hooks about this. You know, I, I'm very happy to say that in an unofficial way, I backed a winner because we weren't actually able to vote in it. It was a US-only vote for whatever reason, but uh, I backed Healy just because of the circus. Surely that was, you know, yeah, common sense. You know? Or, although, I, although I think Rick would have been good as well, just as we know it, but, you know, <laughs> maybe they don't want to bring back the era of Rick Grayson. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But another great one that got announced this week, actually, and I thought this came a little bit out of nowhere as well, was, uh, you know, friend of the podcast, Chip Zdarsky, he mentioned that a spider-man life story annual is going to be coming out uh in the very near future i always looked at life story as six issues and done but i'm very excited to head back to this 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 must be high on your list case surely oh big i mean big style that i mean the original life story by chip zadarsky and mark bagley uh was just it was phenomenal it was 2019 and it, you know it chronicled spider-man's life but without the benefit of elastic time so he was a you know he was a teenager in the in the 60s you know he was in his 20s in the 70s his 30s in the 80s uh right up to the to to, to effectively being in his like a 70s or 80s by the time modern day rolled around so uh and we saw the impacts of that on on the people in his life and uh you know obviously lived a lot of his life without aunt may she died of uh, of natural causes uh, much much earlier rather than uh, her variable age in the comics um there's some suggestion that this is going to focus again on the on on, on spider-man's career but through the eyes of J. jonah jameson interesting mm -hmm. yeah i mean chip did write some really good interesting stuff he did peter parker spectacular for a while and there was always some really highly regarded issues in that. I think one of them was literally just him sitting in Jay Jonathan, Jay Jonah Jameson's apartment, uh, just having a conversation for pretty much the entire issue. So uh, he's got a little bit of experience there. So, and let's be honest, nearly anything he puts out is pretty great. So, but it's good to know that that story's not just completely closed off. But it's not a case of oh, let's do another six issues or whatever. It's you know let let's just tell some original stories set within that sort of alternate, elastic, timeless, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh timeline so yeah bring it on i say the pre-orders that are strong already unsurprisingly so we obviously were watching friday has become like a really good night uh in terms of new content dropping for geeks like us you know gotta say loved mighty ducks game changers number two but i'm not gonna go into that too much uh but falcon winter soldier number three hit and i personally thought this was the best episode yet 
I thought all the stuff in Madripoor was exceptional. I thought that was that 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 was a corner of the Marvel universe. You don't get to see that often. That was and it was great to see. Yeah, I mean, it's a corner of the Marvel universe that is very strongly associated with the X Men and Wolverine in particular. Uh, and the, the bar that they were in, the Princess Bar, is is a bar that uh, that that Logan haunts uh, in his alter ego of Patch, which is the 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 uh, the alter ego that he, he wears whenever he's in in Madripoor and and quite recently appeared in the Wolverine book by uh, Benjamin Percy so that was just a wee oh, it was it was full on it just felt like a wee uh, it's coming it's coming you know the X Men are coming uh, definitely there was a there was a wee tease there I think uh, for sure uh, but yeah really really enjoyed that the, the whole episode um, lot going on with uh, with Bucky this. This episode, uh, him masquerading as uh, the Winter Soldier uh, under the control of Baron Zemo, uh, who was seen for the first time with his purple mask on. And what the, that was the most exciting part of the episode for me, because we've seen Zemo in Captain America Civil War. He was the, the antagonist behind Civil War, the cause of it. Uh, he was He's from um, Sokovia, uh, and, and his... Uh, his drive with his, his family had been killed in the uh, in the Ultron attack on Sokovia, and he took that out in the Avengers. But in this, we learn that Zemo, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is also a Baron, is also from a rich family. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of a lot of history. And so I just I thought it was great they finally put Zemo in the context that we expect him to be in from the comics, uh, which I just thought was absolutely phenomenal because he's always been a wee bit of a loose end for me. In the uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so this was just this was just great. Yeah, and they also managed to showcase off some awesome dance moves by Baron Zemo as well, no less that uh, <laughs> have have spread viral throughout the world. But yeah, I thought the stuff with uh, Agent Carter was great in this as well. I, I it was a really interesting sort of dark conclusion also almost for that character in terms yes. of how the events spin out from her going on the run with Cap and. And it's interesting them all sort of questioning some of Cap's ideals and was he the man to follow and all this kind of stuff. But I gotta say it again, the body count was high. I thought people didn't get killed I, in the Marvel <laughs> universe. I thought the same thing when I was watching, you know, the the shootout at the docks. I was like, God, Alan was right about episode one, wasn't he? You know, the, there's all sorts down here. Well, I mean, no one ever said that nobody died in the Marvel <laughs> universe. I mean, Marvel were the were the, the company that introduced the Punisher uh, at the end of the day, so. I don't know that it's. I think. I think it's a. It's a maybe a spurious correlation. Uh, I think it's coming from the place you know where the criticism of the the DC movies was the darkness. Uh, I don't know if that specifically points to body count, but uh, yeah, I mean, whenever you're dealing with a Winter Soldier, you're going to get body count. You know, at the end of the day, this is a. a I guess more of a an espionage thing. Uh, but what I would say is that it's moving fast. I mean, but I guess you have to inside six episodes. There's so much in every episode. It's just jam-packed. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Loads of nods to the fans. Loads of great story progression. There's there's almost too much, you know, like uh, US Agent or, you know, Captain America these days. I think he was in maybe one scene this week, despite being a very commanding presence in, in episode mm. two. But... As you say, I mean, the, the title characters there, Falcon Winter Soldier, they were very quippy and buddy copy in, in episode two. This one was a bit more sort of take a step back, take stock. It was examining their relationship quite a bit. But yeah, that scene where, you know, Zemo's able to manipulate Bucky into being the Winter Soldier, essentially, even if it's just for show, 
was yeah. you know, was was pretty dark and pretty great as well. I so. think yeah, I mean it has Bucky uh, disobeying every one of the directives that his counselor has given him uh, effectively, and you just sort of wonder is it it's not going to be good for Bucky's mindset, you know? It's and whenever Zemo said, you know, he, he he said the words, you know, the, the 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 code words, the command words, and Bucky didn't respond, but he was sure that he saw something in there, and you wonder. Was he just sort of doing that to manipulate Bucky, or 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 has he, you know, been able to, has he been unable to shed the brainwashing that Hydra gave him, you know, in all that time he spent in Wakanda, uh, and of course the Wakanda uh, inclusion at the end was was phenomenal. The inclusion of uh, of uh, Oya Oyo, one of the Malajidora, the, uh, the the honor guard, the chat was honor guard, so. Uh, I'll be interested to see what next episode brings on that on that end of things as well. Yeah, I mean, just to double back just really quickly before we move on, just on that scene you're talking about with Zemo speaking the words to him, I wondered if in that moment Bucky didn't trust himself and that's why he interrupts him. He doesn't let him say all the words. He maybe gets about mm. three or four into them and he very quickly interrupts him and goes, that, oh, that doesn't work anymore. And you almost wonder mm. if there is still a little part of him within that would actually it would work on him mm-hmm. you know what i mean he still doesn't fully trust himself but but yeah just so much going on on it every single episode i i'm gutted every time the credits roll on it you know i i, I do love yeah, the weekly yeah. content i do love the conversation but damn it i want the next episode like <laughs> well that's it you know straight away it's it is very good it, it harks back to that conversation that they had in episode two you know with with, with where, where uh falcon had given up the shield and what Bucky said was, you know, if you give up the shield, then Steve was wrong about you. And if he was wrong about you, then he was wrong about me. Uh, and and him being able to come back, him being able to, to to be Bucky again rather than the Winter Soldier. So there's that. But it's really interesting because the two of them are nearly the two separate aspects of Captain America where, where Bucky is... Follow me on this. Bucky is very much Steve Rogers. He's the man out of time. He's... 100 years old he, he you know he was he was an ice for i guess longer than steve was you know so he's very much that man out of time he's trying to find his way he's got steve's notebook uh that steve you know which was a really interesting part he's got steve's notebook where he's, he's trying to you know and then falcon is kind of that moral center he's kind of he's kind of captain america do you know what i mean he's kind of the captain america aspect of steve's personality uh where he's you know, he, he sometimes can't get out of his own way uh, or the way of his own honour or, or the, his duty or his way of doing things. So uh, I, I love what they're doing. There's there's a lot of stuff in there. It's great. It's very good. And, of course, one last plug of, for uh, the Trouble Man soundtrack. They are definitely determined to plug <laughs> yeah. that soundtrack as much as possible. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, three more episodes of that to enjoy before it goes on to the next uh, Marvel series, which I believe is going to be... <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Uh, the, the the scene in the car where where Sam just goes, "You're not going to move your seat forward, are you?" <laughs> well, there still had to be be a wee bit of buddy cop stuff in there, didn't it? Yeah, it was just that callback to to Civil War, uh, where he wouldn't move his seat forward for Buggy. Uh, it was just it was great. It was very very good. Anyway, sorry you were saying Loki. No, not next. at all. Not at all. Uh, but yeah, it'll be followed up by Loki three episodes later. I believe a new trailer dropped this week. Keith and I are very much in the I don't know, I think we're maybe in the minority these days, but at this point when you're so close, I've seen all the trailers I need to see. I know I'm going to watch it, but I know you watched the Patty. What was the Loki trailer like? Without yeah, spoiling anything, of course. When it comes to trailers, you know, 
I'll watch them up until the day they're released. You know, if a film was coming out tomorrow and they released another trailer for it, I'd 100% watch it. Yeah, it was good. It was very different. There was a lot of new footage. There was a lot of stuff to speculate on in the trailer, and that's what I'll leave it at. One scene in particular where I, how you haven't seen any mention of it online, even on Twitter or anything, I I don't know, but I'll not say what scene I'm referring to, but looked very, very interesting. I can see you're struggling there, Paddy. I can see you're <laughs> <Yeah>. struggling. <laughs> don't say it. When is it, June? June the 11th. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, so a little oh, way cool. to go to that, but there was also a couple of trailers dropped for Black Widow. I know Stephen made the joke that if you watch all the Black Widow trailers that have been released so far, you probably have the whole movie. Obviously, it's been a victim of, you know, COVID. It's been a victim of having its release date shifted and shifted and shifted. But you still got to, you know, build up excitement for that and build up momentum for it. I did watch this trailer simply because I can't remember any of the other ones. <laughs> but this was also the first trailer that was saying, like, it's coming out. You know, it's it's going to hit Disney Plus at the same time as hopefully a theatrical release. Given the choice, I know what I'll do there. I'll, I'll hit the cinema personally. 100%. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to it. There was some good stuff in that. And then there was another Suicide Squad trailer dropped simply because, similar again with Suicide Squad, there was a sizzle reel last year at DC Fandom, but then there's been next to nothing, so they've kind of left it quite late to hype up Suicide Squad, so I think that's why they threw a couple of trailers together quite close together, although one was a Red Band trailer with tons of swearing, tons of mention of, you know, a field full of dicks, and also tons of King Shark ripping people in half. This new trailer was a lot more family friendly, which in itself is a bit strange when you're making an R-rated movie, but hey ho. <laughs> uh, there was also the cancellation of New Gods last week, which was the uh, project that Ava DuVernay was working on and Tom Keane was writing. They, they've been on this project for quite a while. They've been talking about it on Twitter. They've been talking about how much they were enjoying working together. And... There seems to be a rumor around that this is because Zack Snyder used Darkseid in Justice League. That, to me, doesn't make any sense because if you're going to specifically come out and outwardly say this is not canon anymore, this is just us letting Zack finish off his stuff, why would that impact the new Gods movie? I, I just wonder if there's not maybe the awareness there for it. I know you had mentioned something about this, Keith. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Alan. At the end of the day, regardless of you know the all the Snyder Cut stuff and you know zach's creative control if warner brothers had decided they were using dark side and new gods they'd go on zach you can't use dark side that's it sorry yeah. you know uh and and because this because it's not canon they're not moving forward with it it wouldn't have been any skin off their nose really you know they'd have, they'd have just gone ahead so i totally agree with you it's it i think it's probably a rumor that's emanating from those people who are holding up the snyder cut as the be all and end all sort of thing but yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, the the DC Extended Universe is a wee bit less steady, maybe, than than, than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just by virtue of the, the chopping and changing and things existing in different universes and the lack of uh, uh, continuity, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think it's the lack of a Kevin Feige character. It's the lack yeah, of someone yeah. shepherding a, you know... Yeah. Letting all the filmmakers know this is what links to this, you know, the hiring of the same actors, you know. In the time that the Marvel Universe has been, you know, there's only been one Iron Man. There's only been one Steve Rogers Captain America. 
we're going to be on our third person playing Batman within the same yeah. time because you're at the end of the Nolan movies and then you're Flick Flack, as you like yeah. to call them. Yeah. And then you have uh, <laughs> obviously Pattinson coming up as well. So Yeah, so I mean, to some extent, I think, you know, that that uh, steadiness of the of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has engendered a trust in the audience where we're all going to we're going to go. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go out and see this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go and see this movie. I'm you know, and it allowed them to take the risk that they took with Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a D-list property. You know, nobody knew about it. It's populated by characters that weren't linked to anything else at that time. But everybody went, oh yeah, this is yeah, because of the, I guess because of the 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 faith that that the strength of those releases has engendered in the audience. So. I just don't know. There's two things going on here. I just don't know if the DC Extended Universe has that same faith engendered by the steadiness in the audience. And second, New Gods, have you ever read it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to film. It's not going to be easy to put together a... a uh, it's it's going to be a difficult story to tell in an accessible way, I think within a within a two-hour movie and i mean if if anybody's going to do it it's going to be tom king i think there's there's a complexity there um and i think eternals is probably probably has faced the same sort of thing uh given they were both created by by mr kirby himself yeah i, th I think that's fair i think that a marvel movie has engendered that trust now i think as long as there's a new marvel movie people go see it you know I wouldn't say Shang-Chi has the, the biggest amount of awareness. I know obviously it's something you're very much looking forward to, Keith, but I wouldn't say that it has the awareness of you know a Cap or an Iron Man or mm. Avengers or whatever. But Iron Man didn't really have an awareness until Iron Man came out. You know, Iron Man was very much a D-level Marvel character compared to Spidey and the X-Men and Fantastic well, Four. I mean, Iron Man has always been one of the big three of the Avengers, Cap, Thor, and Iron Man. So maybe, you know, for me, the awareness was there. For, for uh, a comic book fan, I think yeah. that's right. I just mean for the general public, you know, if you, yeah, you yeah. would have thought of Marvel in the early 2000s, you would have thought of the X-Men. You would have thought of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. You would have thought yeah, of yeah. Fantastic Four. So, but I think with Marvel, and, and Eternals might be the first one to really test this, I think, because it's going to be big, big budget. And it, it's an IP that I, I don't know if people know. I still don't know an awful lot about the Eternals, and I'm <laughs> three or four issues into a new miniseries, you know? So uh, Yeah, Eternals, I think, will be the big test of that theory that if it's a Marvel film, people will go and see it anyway. You know, it's due out, I think, fairly fairly soon, isn't it? And there hasn't been a trailer. There hasn't been... Yeah, it's 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 one of the first ones as well, I would say. Although I suppose you could go back to Guardians as well for this, but it's one of the first ones that... As far as we know, although it, it is Marvel, they like to keep surprises. As far as we know, there's no one that we recognize in it. You know what I mean? Like, you'll have yeah. Black Widow, but Black Widow, we we know Natasha Romanoff, we know Scarlett Johansson, we know those characters. With Eternals, what do we know? You know? So, yeah, I don't know. It, it'll be a big test, but, you know, they've got my money because they've 100% fully got my trust at this point. And at the end of the day, they want to introduce movies that are going to make them money so they can make more of them. So, of course. You know, that there is always going to be that bottom line as much as we, you know, like to think it's all for the fans. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, with New Gods, I just don't think the awareness is there. I, I agree with you, Keith, that uh, it, it's a complex world. It's a lot to try and fit in in two hours that you haven't set up at all. But, you know, I, I think it'll end up being a comic. I really do. I think you'll end up getting Tom King's script turned into a comic, Alien 3 screenplay style, that kind of thing. But mm -hmm, we'll mm -hmm. wait and see. 
But then, yeah, movie-wise, just one last thing we wanted to throw out because I know it's something that, that Keith is massively anticipating and that was a little bit of a reconsideration of Dune coming out and maybe doing that concurrent HBO Max cinema release. Now, Godzilla vs. Kong came out this week worldwide and it's doing pre-pandemic numbers. It is something like 400 million worldwide already, a lot of that coming from China. But it's even doing great business in the States. Things are slowly starting to reopen. Society's hopefully starting getting restarted now. So maybe they've looked at that model and thought, well, if Godzilla vs. Kong can make money and it's a big, massive, big budget, find the biggest screen you can type of movie, and even with the option of watching at home, it's still making that money. So will they do something similar for Dune? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, especially given the... I mean, it's been in the news this week. Uh, Kel McLachlan, who played Paul Atreides in the original um, 1984 Dune, was was saying it was really disappointing uh, that, you know, Villeneuve's Dune was going to be see see that see that simultaneous release. The worry was that they were. It was all about it was all about the the studio. It wasn't about the filmmaker. That that it would stymie the amount of money that could be made, and therefore probably because the. The I guess the vision for this movie is that it's it's going to be the problem with Dune is Dune is I guess like we were just talking about New Gods it's going to be a very hard story to tell in a two two and a half hour movie I don't think you can do it uh, so the the idea is that this was going to be the first of two or three movies I believe uh, and that if it didn't make the money that it needed to make it didn't justify itself they would be cutting it off at the knees um, so yeah I think it's uh, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I, I think what's happened is that the studios have had this knee-jerk reaction. You know, we were in a period there we, we didn't know what was happening, you know, so they needed they needed to get a move on with these films. You know, they couldn't sit with five or six films that will bring close to a billion, just keep them, we'll hold off, we'll hold off, we'll hold off. And I think now, as you're saying, you know, cinemas are starting to reopen, so they're starting to, to kind of revise this idea. I think HBO Max is quite expensive in America. You know, not every household is going to have HBO Max, so I think it makes total sense in terms of opening up a you know a dual release with a cinema. I mean, I watched Kong at home, and it was all right. It wasn't you know going to win. It's never going to win any awards. But the the second half, which is the action packed bit, I was just going. I wish I was watching this in the cinema mm. because he, uh, you know, I have a nice fifty inch TV in the house. You know, it, it, it's good viewing quality, but it just wasn't a cinema. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think Dune. I don't know how much you know about it, Paddy, but it is going to be a cinematic movie. Yeah, uh, it's going to be, it's it's an epic movie. You know, it's set it's it's galactic. You know, the 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 expanse of the, the planet Arrakis is going to be is going to be huge. But then there's this there's this deal that that Warner Brothers have done with Regal Cinemas that would give that chain in the US an exclusive forty five day theatrical window window for Warner Brothers films in the twenty twenty two. So that would mean June was supposed to schedule to arrive in theaters and on an HBO Max on October the first of twenty twenty one. But if Warner Brothers apply this deal to that, then June will be in cinemas on the first of October, and then two months later, it'll be on HBO Max, and that means HBO Max is still getting it as part of their their twenty twenty one streaming lineup. And I think the other thing is HBO Max hasn't gone anywhere near as well as. They hoped it was. I don't think it's. I don't think it's doing terribly well as a streaming service. 
Um, but yeah, so so yeah, and I mean that would that would please, that would give June the kind of release it needs. It would please the director, and it would mean HBO Max still gets what it wants. So I would I don't know. I'd like to see it. Yeah, I mean I'm in two minds whether to watch Godzilla Kong. I've seen it on the Sky Store, sixteen pound. The way I look at it is that's the price of two cinema tickets for Vicky and I to go, but. Again, it's it's not a movie that's going to. I don't think anyway that's going to surprise you with its uh, epic storytelling and deep character studies. It's a movie about two giant kaiju essentially beating the crap out of each other. So I'm yeah. I'm happy in a sense to wait. I, I kind of I do miss being on the sort of train where everybody's seen it. You can chat about it and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think it's going to work best on a big screen. So fingers crossed, cinemas are back open this side of the world maybe within the next month, six weeks, two months, whatever. And that would be the kind of release to open with, so mm-hmm. yeah. I might just hold off. But uh, no doubt, we'll yeah, be... I would, I would suggest holding off. I mean, yeah. But then, of course, we'll be recording next week, and I'll be like, "So Godzilla Kong, then? How about that?" <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that's that. Pretty much wraps up the sort of TV comic movie news we wanted to sort of chat about. Again, just another quick reminder that uh, we will be opening April twelfth for the store in Smithfield for Click and Collect. Uh, again we're going to be operating it three days a week at the start so your monday your wednesday and your saturday but again we'll plaster this information everywhere this week where uh, i've even filmed a little uh a little tour of the store and i'll I'll be putting this out in as many avenues as i can and making sure everybody knows the 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 full details so uh but yeah just april 12th just to, to keep that in mind but we're here as ever to talk about our weekly comics so these again are releases that came out on the 31st of march uh, we'll always do our pull list totals to get started. So, pretty decent sized week for me this week. It was 23 titles in total. I had a very even split between DC and Marvel, which was 5 DC and 5 Marvel. And um, once again, Indie is the winner for me with 13 Indie titles this week. What about you, Keith? What were your numbers? I'm lagging behind this week on 16 titles, three of them DC, eight Marvel, and five Indie. So, it was a wee bit of a wee bit of a quiet week for me nonetheless it, uh, it, it took me a wee while to to sort of get into get into the reading i read two or three and then i sort of had stopped i was at something else so uh, a big big day of reading yesterday to get them all finished off and then just as you were flying close to the sun last week paddy with your massive totals neck and neck with keith what happened this yeah, week i didn't even hit double figures this week <laughs> i had nine titles in total one dc three marvel four indie and one trade paperback I was going to argue that the trade paperback is technically seven issues, but I decided not to. <laughs> That's good that you decided that, Paddy. Yeah. It's nice that you decided you weren't going to argue it, but you're going to make sure to mention it. Very good, very good. But uh, no, I'm afraid that doesn't count. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a spirited try, but no, no, counts as a trade. But uh, I know we'll be hearing more about that trade as we go through the pod, anyway. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off as ever with our honourable mentions before we get to our picks of the week. So again, breaking it down, DC, Marvel and Indie. So DC-wise, I think the one title we were all going to be on this week was the uh, latest release for Batcat, or Batman Catwoman, number four. So again, we're continuing on the story written by Tom Keane, Paddy's favourite author, and uh, Clay Mann on art and Tomo More on colours. So I thought another strong issue for Batcat. There is a part of me that is really looking forward to this all being out because it is again it's very tom keen style slow considered storytelling uh lots of layers to it you've obviously got the three alternate timelines through it 
you're getting introduced more and more to Bruce and Selena's daughter Helena, who you know is is one of this uh, one of the stories new sort of Batwoman. You've got still stories from Selena's criminal past and her and Bruce courting. God, there's an old word to use courting oh my curtain. god curtain curtain sir curtain uh and then of course you have bits and pieces in um in the sort of modern day timeline as well with phantasm being in- implemented a lot more as well so yeah i thought this was another great issue i think clay's art continues to be the 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 hero of the the series there's a in particular a double page spread where, where batman's perched the top of a, this gothic tower you know catwoman in the foreground I just thought the the imagery of that was superb. I think that's a, a print waiting to happen. But again, I, I, I blast through these issues every time they come out, I find, and I'm always left wanting more. So, yeah, that was that was my take on it anyway. What about yourself, Keith? Uh, I enjoyed it. It was all right. Um, it wasn't my favorite issue so far. Um, I sort of lost track of the timelines a wee bit. Um I couldn't figure out where the where the past timeline was in this. So that was the one with them uh, getting ready to go to a function. Was uh, so when you've got Selena in a dress and Bruce getting yes, suited up. Uh-huh. Because if as as weird of a marker as it is, the modern day timeline is Selena in her underwear because she just fought with uh, Phantasm. And yes. she's now being kidnapped and being held. Then you've got yes. the past where she's telling uh, Bruce about yes. how the Joker's planted a bomb. And she only knows that information because as there's uh, a few few wee nods to it throughout of how they enjoyed a special relationship, which is kind of yes. interesting as well. You know, you have... And that then... Uh, sorry, Alan. So therefore, the, the last couple of pages, including that lovely splash page, uh, that is also the past? That's the past as well. So that's Catwoman yeah. in her dark black yeah, costume Yeah, there we go. Well. Yeah, yeah. I sort of... I was using the costumes to keep track, and because there wasn't costumes in some of the and uh, some of the the lineups, and because Batman's standing very much in the back, uh, ground, I just wasn't one hundred percent sure. And where is Phantasm? Where is Andrea? And that scene where, which is highlighted with red and looks looks lovely, she seems to be walking through a model. Is it a model of Gotham City inside some sort of dome? If you look at that, page I think so. If, again, I think this is a this is a deep cut right here. So, if you remember Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, there was the World's Fair. Yes. I think this is a model of the World's Fair. So ah, I think this is a throwback okay. to Mask of Phantasm because okay. I saw I actually saw that image previewed, and I thought it was a dream sequence. So I did have you know Phantasm sort of lurched over the city, but because yeah. Phantasm walks through a doorway and then comes to those TVs with the pictures of her son. Uh, I get the impression that that is going to be the world's fair. So I think that's a throwback to Mask of Phantasm, the animated movie. Okay, I get you. Cool. No, brilliant. I mean, uh, it, it, it looks gorgeous. Clayman, Clayman's art is just phenomenal. Clayman draws a very sexy Selena Kale, doesn't he? <laughs> he's he's very well known as drawing sexy women and beefcake men so uh <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't shy away from that either you know and unfortunately as, as great an artist he is you know he's he's a student of rob liefeld you know and he'll happily admit that we have a long ongoing battle on that but uh <laughs> but yeah I would, I would agree with you keith and that as good as it is i want to read it all at once you know uh, i think the storytelling even though you're getting you know three timelines and one issue for me it's Give me more. I know that's a saying of a good, a good book, but part of me. How many issues is this? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not even halfway through it. We're a third of the way through it. 
<laughs> I don't know if I'm going to carry on doing it weekly or will I just do it as a trade. Decisions, decisions. It's mm-hmm. all right. You're you're a big boy. You can make those decisions and let me know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but overall, yeah, I mean, four issues in, uh, every issue has been has had something to say about it. Uh, so I'm really, yeah. I, I mean, my, it's a it's a great series. Uh, I think he's doing he's doing great. As I say, my only my only problem was that slight uh, unclear unclarity of of where the timelines were switching. Um, I just took a wee bit of work, but then who's to say that you shouldn't be putting a wee bit of work in? Uh, if something's worth uh, worth reading and worth understanding, and everything's there, then it's just my own stupidity that uh, that isn't uh, that isn't picking it up. As uh, as Clay would be quite happy to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. Well, the one thing I would say, Paddy, with regards to it is, and I think Keith and I will will probably agree on this. Rorschach's got better with every issue, and. Our next uh, honourable mention, Strange Adventures 9, for me anyway, I think has got better with every issue. So I I, I think this, again, it's interesting. I know I, I wind you up a little bit and you didn't massively enjoy Tom King's Batman run and that's absolutely fine. It's just he does have a very specific style of storytelling that is very slow paced, uh, very character building. And that's why I, that's the only reason it surprised me you didn't like his Batman run because you had it all. You know what I mean? You didn't have to do yeah. like the... the f- at the time it was fortnightly actually as opposed to, to monthly but yeah i thought uh, strange adventures number nine i thought was another really really strong issue as well uh, i think the art continues to excel in this strange adventures what i love is that uh tom has been able to get two different artists so you've got uh, evan doc shaner and you've got mitch jared's splitting art duties based on where the story is and I love their commitment to the three-panel structure as opposed to the nine-panel structure that Keen loves so much because it feels very widescreen and very like old sci-fi movie-ish. I think the imagery the whole way through, it's fantastic. I, I love the cameos in this issue as well. You get a little bit of Batman in here and you also get Mitch Dredge drawing Superman, which I don't know if we've seen before. So I was, I was quite happy about that as well. Stakes are being raised. Loyalties are being tested. Yeah, I just I'm really digging Strange Adventures, and this is definitely the epitome of a title that as soon as I have all twelve issues, it will be reread. I think start to finish. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, it's this this issue felt like a refocusing a wee bit on the on the core themes of what the the book's about. You know, we've had some great issues where you know we've had we followed Mister Terrific to to Ran in order to to do his investigation, and there's been a bit of back and forth in between himself and Alana and. And all of that, but this felt like a, a refocusing on the on the core themes. So we've got we've got a couple of things going on. We've got Adam Strange, who's the only warrior ever to have defeated the Picts uh, on Ran, uh, leading Earth's forces in a war against an invasion of those same Picts. At the same time, Batman has sort of Mister Terrific leading an investigation, and there's mounting evidence that what Adam did on Ran and his victory isn't maybe everything that we were led we were originally led to believe it was i mean there's echoes in here of uh maybe to some extent of uh veterans returning from from you know going to vietnam and and been really having the country behind them and then coming back from vietnam and the, the the public opinion in the war had changed and they're coming back to a country that's hostile to them and the things that they did in in vietnam you know and that so there's there's something there but there's also a lot here about the media and manipulation of the media and how the media i guess 
you know, public opinion is manipulated by the media. Yeah, it's all and, about how they report information. Yeah, exactly, and, and where they get that information. And so that, I thought that was great. I thought the two uh, presenters on the news were the dialogue was really well handled. And whenever Alana was in the mix, she was a wee bit Donald Trump on the whole thing, I thought. Uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, you know, she acknowledged the truth of the allegations against uh, against Adam, but then just sort of threw them aside. You know, this is this isn't really too much to worry about, sort of thing. Who do you, who do you want? Who do you want leading your armies? Someone who is going to stand still and do nothing, or someone who's going to do too much? You know what I mean? So it's it's very 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 cool, very enjoyable. And I thought uh, Adam's uh, moment with Superman. You know, I begged you to help. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, I think Adam is Adam's stuck in the middle here. Adam's becoming the pawn or maybe the victim in some ways of Alana's machinations and Batman and Mr. Terrific's investigation. You know, he's just the he's just the the playing piece, really. And I think he's starting to feel the pressure and he's starting to suffer while the the two of them push him around the board. You know. Yeah. I think that's a very fair point. You know, he's he's split loyalties as well, that kind of thing. And it's interesting as well. We spoke before about like the design on Rorschach, how the, the back cover is almost better than the front cover. And the back cover has that sort of hero poster, that hero pose of, of Adam Strange. But of course, his head's bowed. And, you know, does he really want to be the hero? That kind of thing. So, yeah, I just I look forward to Strange Adventures every time it comes out. And as I say, I'm really looking forward to a, a proper 12 issue reread once it uh, mm -hmm. reaches its conclusion. Yeah, we're in the end game now. Last the last two or three issues. Yeah, three more to go. So again, he loves those twelve issue maxi series, Mister Keaton. Yeah, so, so interesting to see what that you know these last three issues are gonna are gonna ramp things up and 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 probably really really deliver. Yeah, so that's uh, pretty much it for the DC Honourable Mentions. There are a couple of titles we'll certainly get into a little bit later, but in terms of Honourable Mentions, we'll jump on now to Marvel, and I'm going to be up front just with my one uh, Marvel Honourable Mention straight away, just because it was so close to being my pick of the week, and it was only it was only beaten at the last second by what I do pick later on, but... I look forward to this for ages. So this is Better A Bill. Uh, There's a brand new number one. There's going to be a mini series by Daniel Warren Johnson on writing and art duties and Mike Spicer on colors. Again, anyone who's listened to us before, you know, I love Wonder Woman Dead Earth. I love Daniel Warren Johnson's style in general. I love Murder Falcon. It's a great image series all about rock and roll and heavy metal and summoning big creatures. There's just something about his art style that is awesome for epic level action that's a little bit otherworldly so with better a bill you know it's amongst thor's supporting cast in terms of fan admiration i'd say better a bill's probably up there probably not even far behind thor himself you know he was created by walter simonson and there's actually a really good interview at the back of this issue as well between daniel warren johnson and walter simonson i uh, was created back in mighty thor 337 and what's great about this issue it says it's sort of a tie in the keenan black but it's i would argue it's not really it's uh essentially Ray, uh, better a bill is uh tasked with protecting asgard thor is on earth he's battling the keenan black and he has to be responsible for the safety of asgard now the only problem is uh if you've been reading thor donny kate's run it's linked very heavily to this if you remember stormbreaker getting destroyed for example which of course was uh better a bill's version of mjolnir you know he feels like he's not worthy to actually protect asgard 
and he's also very um very conscious about his looks as well he can't revert back to his normal form so there's this great little panel where you know the uh, voiceover is my beautiful boy and you've got like better a bill smiling the most awkward school kids photo smile uh there's a lot of stuff in here with his relationship with lady sif and how she struggles to be with him because he obviously is you know quite abhorrent looking in comparison to his other self but yeah the the Keenan Black related stuff is uh, Fing Fang Foom has been taken over by one of the Carnage symbiotes and attacks Asgard. And Better is doing his best to hold him back. But of course, right on cue, Fing Fang Foom gets hit with the lightning. Thor comes back. Ladies are all around Thor. He's back to his old Lothario self. Oh, no problem. I save you guys. All this kind of stuff. But of course, this makes you know Better A build out himself even more. So there's tons of great character work in this as well, as uh, but the artwork is where it stands out for me. Again, I can't emphasize it enough how much I love Daniel Warren Johnson's style. There's a great little uh, scene at the end as well between Thor and Better Ray Bill, where he's talking about how he's not worthy anymore, and you know he wishes Thor had never come back. This kind of thing, but it essentially ends with uh, Better Ray Bill leaving Asgard and going on a bit of a journey of self-discovery. The, the pre-orders for this were quite low, which is a real shame, to be honest. I ordered in quite a few of them because I, I think this is going to be a series that will pick up steam at the last minute. And I really can't recommend enough. Just first issue was superb. And then again, that we interviewed at the back is, is great added value as well. It's nice to see a bit of an insight into Walter Simonson's mind as well. So if you're not on it and you're a Marvel fan and you're a Thor fan, get on it. So <laughs> I feel like you're talking to me. Yeah, stick it, stick it, stick a copy in my, uh, <laughs> stick a copy in my pull list, will you please, Alan? It it just always surprises me when there's a Marvel title that I'm on that you're not. It shocks me every time <laughs> because your pull list is like it. It is very even. I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like nearly every big big level Marvel title that's coming out, you're like, yep, stick it on, yep, stick it on. And yeah. I'm always shocked when I'm the one reading one and you're not. But yeah, I can't recommend enough. I will give you the the Coffee and Heroes money back guarantee. If you don't love it, you can send it back to me and I'll give you a full refund. But that's not going to happen. Is that guarantee with everything, Alan, or is that just a, just a one-off? Only, thi- only things that I speak that passionately about, you know. Neil Bader would have been, Neil Bader would have been one of those. And only, only to the people that are recording the podcast. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, let me just put that disclaimer out there as well. But yeah, honestly, just great, great title, guys. Better 8 Bill, number one. Um, but I'm going to pass it over to Mr. Marvel himself then. Hit us with some honorable mentions. Yeah, another uh, another King and Black tie-in. It's, uh, it's issue four of Return of the Valkyries by uh, Jason Aaron and Toron Grunbeck uh, and uh, Nina Vakuva. Uh, Vakuva. Uh, on art sorry I, I butchered that name um so this is the final episode of uh the final issue of the the, the king and black tie-in uh, featuring uh jane foster picks up right where the previous issue left off uh jane and danny moonstar uh, of the new mutants who herself is a valkyrie has been um hold a string that will uh sever null from the headless celestial which was null's first kill uh, and is the uh, is the source of power of the Necrosword. Uh, they come under attack by the Celestial itself, which it it powers the the Necrosword and also absorbs all the souls from it. So it's it's full of souls, and uh, they come under attack from the Celestial, and they're forced to to halt this ritual where they're using this 
uh, this magic needle to to unstitch the the connection between uh, the necrosword and the celestial, and the in and the celestial is in, in the land of the dead, and they're joined by a previously freed Valkyrie, that is the Valkyrie of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, played by Tessa Thompson, uh, and Jane is is pulled into the celestial's form. She's she's tested in a really cruel cruel way by the celestial itself it involves her her, her dead son um so yeah it's a great great wrap up uh to this you know to to aaron and and, and grunbeck's piece of the the king and black crossover event um valkyries are, are right front and center while it links really quite well to the to the king and black story itself and yeah i mean just just really, really good. Uh, I love what they're doing here. The the Valkyrie series, Jane Foster was was cancelled, but they're continuing the story in a series of, you know, a series of mini series. And uh, there's another one called the Mighty Valkyries coming up next. Um, so yeah, I think they did a they did a really good job. I think they've used um, the tie-in to great effect. They've tied it into King and Black, but they've managed to push the story of Jane Foster and the Valkyries forward. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. I think I've honorably mentioned uh at, at the very least every one of the issues of this of this series so well worth a grab nice yeah i mean i i've collected all of keenan black i just haven't read it all to be honest it goes to the bottom of the pile every week just because there's so much of it but i have this feeling i'm going to sit down at some point i even have a keenan black box uh one of the printed boxes that i keep the whole collection in so I'll, I'll get to it i know you weren't a huge fan of return of the valkyries patty was that just due to lack of knowledge of the yeah, characters lack, before lack of knowledge uh, dropped off after i think issue one the only major one i think i stayed with four parter was symbiote spider-man out of anything king and black you know what king and black i'm looking at a, a massive massive learning experience you know i know it was either jump on everything or pick your favorites i think with it being since i started reading anyway my first big proper event i wanted to experience at all i think it's maybe diluted the main series a wee bit for me because there's been so much and i i, I know i said it before and i was, I was kind of laughed at but just so many of the tie-ins all seem so similar to me symbiote dragon beat symbiote dragon where do we go now uh but yeah no it was mainly just because i didn't know the characters you know it's been the same with so many uh, other tie-ins where I haven't known the characters and I've just I've just not had interest in it. So it's all right, Keith. I'll steer you right. He's a he's a veteran when it comes to these uh, Marvel events. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just copy everything Keith's on next time. <laughs> so what well, else uh, we got I'm there? Happy to gauge you. Happy to gauge you. Um, issue twenty-eight of uh, Tanahisi Coates Captain America. It's coming to an end with issue thirty. Um, I would like to go back and read this entire run again. I think um, it was. It seemed a wee bit uh, bitty and, and and all over the place at times, and, and hard to hard to grab hold of. It's you know, Coates is writing a political book here, which is what Captain America is perfect for. It's always been political. Cap was a character created by a Jewish man to stand up against Nazism, and so politics are integral to, to Cap's roots and I think the comment here is about the rise of bigotry and hatred in America which all you've had to do is, is watch the place over the last 10 years and you'll, you'll have seen it and and that's exactly what this is 
I don't know that uh, that Coates is or should be uh, subtle about it. Um, at one point early on, Steve sort of corrects a cop, um, not in, a, not in a nasty way. Cop makes some comment to terrorism, and Steve says that America has has made a whole load of its own domestic terrorists. Uh, you know, so he sort of corrects them in that way, and we know that you know many of the like the right wing hate groups and stuff have used the internet as a recruitment tool and and that's what the red skull is doing here and he says some real you know he's got some real toxic things to say about uh, women and feminism and and that so so yeah i mean maybe people maybe maybe people will be switched off by the political nature but uh but yeah i think uh i think it's probably the perfect book to do it in and the perfect writer to do it um so yeah that yeah i enjoyed enjoyed issue 28 and i'm I'll be looking forward to 29 and, and 30 and, and then what comes next for Captain America. Um, so title with a with Tanahisi quotes on it, you would expect it to be a title with something to say. I just sometimes feel that maybe for whatever reason, I've maybe missed that message, you know, over the last 30 issues or so. And I maybe want to go back and, and read it again. Um, nice to see Sin, the daughter of Red Skull in here as well. Uh, and we have uh, another appearance by Agatha Harkness, who we all know has, uh, has come into the, 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 mainstream media consciousness with uh with with one division um so she has a she has a nice role here as well so yeah pretty uh pretty good stuff pretty good stuff and then next up i see you're glad to finally get some sort of uh closure on ghost rider <laughs> another king and black tie-in uh so this was uh yeah this was ghost rider uh, king and black ghost rider and uh ed breeson on it uh and uh juan uh, frigeri and I, this was this was class. Ed Breeson's Ghost Rider was cancelled after seven issues um, last year, partly COVID, you know, this and that and the other. You know, there was a, there was a lot that, that went the way of the dodo. But but effectively, what Ed Breeson has done here is he's he's throwing in a symbiote dragon and then finished telling the story he wanted to tell in his Ghost Rider run. And and I am very happy to see it. So, I mean, the last volume of Ghost Rider. The last big volume, the Hard Mackey volume, we had to wait like in 20 years for it to finish to get the last issue. So I'm glad we didn't have to wait that long to get this. We've got uh, John Blaze, current King of Hell, continuing his uh, trying to, to round up the demons that have escaped from, from Hell. Meanwhile, trying to uh, not, every time he, 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 he takes one back, he seems to absorb their sin and he was getting more and more evil and uh, he ended up dragging Mephisto out of the Hotel Inferno when he's running. So Mephisto's in here. Um, Mephisto's uh, Mephisto's son is in here. Uh, we've got uh, Danny Ketch. We've got John Blaze. We've got the Caretaker. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great stuff, and he he finishes it off nicely. Uh, the the it re sort of resets things a wee bit. We've got Mephisto now takes 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 over as as King of Hell again, back where I guess he should be. Uh, Johnny's back to being the Ghost Rider. Danny is the spirit of corruption. Um, so yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot going on. You read this as well, Paddy, didn't you? I did. Yeah, it, I had no idea what was happening for most of it. <laughs> but as you say, you know, there was a, you could tell it was the it was the end of a story. But I think it got me interested enough where I was thinking, oh, I mean, you know, going back and reading how you know why this guy wants revenge or, or what's going on here. But yeah, it was it, it was good, and you know. 
I now know the end of the story, so is there any point in going back and reading seven issues? Uh, well, you know, I, I certainly enjoyed it. But, uh, yeah, it was great to see all of that stuff uh, tied up. The the art was phenomenal, and the colours really sort of popped off the, the page, especially Mephisto, who's obviously bright red all the time. Um, and, yeah, Ed Breeson's just, just great, and I'm glad to finish that. Glad to finish that tale, um, and I'll be interested to see what what happens with Ghost Rider next. Well, I've now got a theory as to why Predator got delayed because Marvel are mad at Ed Brisson for uh, using Keenan Black to finish off his Ghost Rider story <laughs> and have went, you're not writing Predator anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I would say this was this was maybe one of my favorite Keenan Black tie-ins, uh, even though it was really only that in name. Uh, seeing Danny Blaze just sever the head of a symbiote dragon was, was pretty awesome. Nice. Um, and then one last uh, Marvel honorable mention then. Yeah, last one, uh, X-Men 19 by uh, by Jonathan Hickman and Mahmoud Azrar, uh, Sonny Go on colours, and it sort of marks the conclusion of the, the Children of the Vault arc, at least for now, uh, starring X-23, Wolverine, uh, Sink and Darwin. They were sent on a mission to find out what the superpowered beings in the, in the Vault, the Children of the Vault, were up to. Uh, and they have had, they were, they were chosen for a specific reason, as they had to live a lifetime inside the vault while the outside world didn't as a result of the time dilation between the two two areas. So, you know, changed their relationships, someone didn't return. Uh, so it was kind of a it was kind of a, a heartbreaking issue. Hickman, I mean a lot of the, the heavy lifting of the of the, the X titles has been done in, in X Men and Hickman's a he's a great writer. Um and he's writing some great characters as well. This issue was from Sink's point of view. Sink's power set was originally a Generation X character. I got into Generation. I was an early adopter of Generation X, so Sink is is one of my favorite characters. His powers, he's able to sync up with another mutant's powers. So that's why he was the perfect choice to enter here because he's able to sync up with Wolverine and use her healing factor so he didn't grow old and die. And then Darwin is a hyper evolutionary. So he evolves, so whenever the, the time stream is, is different, he'll evolve to not age uh, in it. Um, so yeah, it's just it was just really it was really fantastic. The the they're they're there for like a hundred years or more and uh, to some extent, you know, Everett Sink and an X twenty three Laura develop a, a relationship sort of and then whenever I guess whenever she come whenever they come out he escapes, she doesn't escape. So in in, in standard um, protocol for Krakoa, she is resurrected and backed up from her last set of memories. And so while Everett seems to remember that 100-year relationship, she doesn't because her memories, her last backed up memories were before they went into the vault. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a, this was very close to being my pick of the week. Um, this, was, this was right up there. Tragic tale about uh, about three characters and it, it has stayed with me I have to say it looks great uh, I mean what do you expect from Ahmed Azrar uh, it looks fantastic and it's, a, it's quite a quite a dark story and I, I would say the last couple of issues of X-Men have been among the best of this series so far uh, for sure really really emotional issue in some ways nice so that's going to bring the Marvel honourable mentions to a close then with X-Men number does. 19 it does, but let me just, for your benefit, mention X-Men Legends 2. The reason being 
Going off story. script, I tell you. Uh, the reason being not the story, it just occurred to me actually, Alan. Uh, the Summers family, uh-huh. Cyclops, Havoc, uh, you know, that whole that whole cable strife, young cable. There's there's a there's a family t- there's a family tree a Summers family tree at the back of the issue. Mm-hmm. It is the most special Summers family tree attempt I have ever seen. It looks great. So you have you have related by blood, related by cloning, related by being alternative universe family, <laughs> related by, by time travel. <laughs> really, they they do a really really good job. I'll send you a picture of it later on, but uh, but worth worth it for the men- worth the mention. Oh, I, I actually, I have a copy myself. I've uh, been collecting those rather nice connecting covers as well. But uh, I actually thought that was going to be a three-issuer, the Fabian Nikiza stuff. But it's actually changing creative team for issue three. So Yeah, we're getting uh, Walt, and Walt and Wheezy Simonson. It's not a bad trade. Not a bad yeah, trade. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think that brings an end to the Marvel Honorable Mention. It surely does. Sorry for that uh, (laughs) last minute deviation. Not at all. So we'll just jump on to indie quickly then. So uh, one that up front made a real impression on me, actually, and it's just interesting. You were talking about family dynamics and great stuff and X-Men and how good of a writer Hickman is. A writer who's been steadily climbing the ranks for me recently is Stephanie Phillips. Uh, We've really enjoyed her work on Butcher of Paris. There was a great Aftershock title she did called Red Atlantis. There's the Parrot Tale, A Man Among You. There was a really good Assassin time traveling tale called Artemis the Assassin. And she's working on this title at the moment called Nuclear Family uh, for Aftershock Comics. And Stephanie Phillips writing and Tony Chastain on art. Now, the first issue of this was your very traditional nuclear family type stuff. You know, the setup is 50s era sort of red scare, you know. Radio and emergency rations in the basement, honest, hardworking families, you know, bombs start dropping, everyone goes down to the basement, duck and cover. So you think it's a really straightforward sort of story. But the thing about it was, issue two starts, and they come up from the bomb shelter. And apparently where they live, which is Milwaukee, has been completely wiped off the face of the earth. Somehow their house is the only thing that's left standing. Soldiers kick down the door. One of them looks like the main character's uh, co-worker. Calls them a commie, they steal all their stuff, put the family under arrest, and they find out it's 10 years later as well. So it took a real great turn in this issue into the into hard sci-fi. You know, the first issue was obviously concerned with setting up the family dynamics and uh, setting up the setting and so forth. But this moves into something altogether, uh, as I say, more science fiction tinged. And I must admit, I wasn't massively sold in the first issue, but I absolutely loved the second issue. I thought it it sort of changed the game a little bit uh, in terms of this title. So, yeah, Nuclear Family 2. I think you were reading this as well, Paddy. Yeah, I don't know if I liked the the 10-year idea maybe as much as you did. I'm going to stay with it, though, because I think it could be interesting. The end of issue one, we see a bomb land on top of their house, and then, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being sceptical for the time being, but I, I'm definitely going to stay with it. I think the art in it is unique. Yeah. It's very different than any other titles you see on the shelf. I actually really enjoyed the sort of uh, shout-outs to classic brands of the era and stuff like that and some of their 
some of their rations in their house. You had like Kellogg's Rice Crisp and you had like coffee jars and you had milk. And um, But yeah, I thought it was a really, really, really strong issue. And surely an X-Files fan like yourself, this is, this is right up your wheelhouse, I would have thought. That's that. why I'm, go- I'm going to give it time. Give it time. Well, I suppose we may as well move from there on to the most influenced by X-Files of all time title. Of course, always makes it on to the honourable mentions, if not the pick of the week. And what are we talking about, Paddy? Department of Truth number seven. Shock. Uh, art, <laughs> art this week by Tyler Boss and a bit of an issue focusing on the Men in Black. Uh, really enjoyed this issue uh, better than last month's, which was if they're going to do this, I really like this idea. I like this idea of Department of Truth having an overall arc, say five, six issues, and then a two issue break that goes into. Uh, a young Harvey Oswald, sorry, yes. You know, so these two issues are based on Lee Harvey Oswald discovering, you know, kind of the foundations of the Department of Truth. Yeah, again, better than last week's episode. The art this week, some some unique panel layouts. You know, there was a lot of of reading in this issue. There was, you know, his, uh, his, his newspaper clippings, uh, but yes, definitely a, a highlight for me. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I really enjoyed the last issue as well. Um, I know you you didn't enjoy it as much, but I just thought that a deep dive into the ancient history of the Department of Truth and the the enemy, as it were, uh, the the Black Hats was was really interesting. And I, I think I think this concept of the the secret archives, as you say, you know, this two yeah. or three issue break, we explore the history, we explore something else, and then we we move on this. This felt like the most X Filesy uh, of all of them so far. Uh, you know, the Men in Black uh, and and all of that stuff. Uh, who always sort of seem to appear, you know, after a UFO sighting, and and also a bit of a character exploration and an origin of of uh, of Doc Hines uh, as well. Uh, I thought that was that was great. So yeah, uh, really uh, really enjoying this. James James Tenyon. Uh, I don't know this. This might be my favourite book of his, maybe, but it's hard to tell. There's so much going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of the artist of this issue, which is uh, Tyler Boss. He's uh, doing a series at the moment called Dead Dogs Bite, and actually did a really great series with uh, I think it was Matthew Rosenberg called Four Kids Walk Into a Bank. It's almost a very retro esque uh, comic style, so it is, but. It's it's the kind of art style I know that you love, Keith. Nice clean lines, nice uh, just <laughs> defined characters. Colors are are great the whole way through it. But yeah, for of course it being a Tinian book, the dialogue's fantastic. You know the conversation in the diner between the two is brilliant. I really enjoyed the excerpts from his book as well. You know I would read a full book of that. I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just really really enjoyed it. And again, it's I think this is definitely the way forward in terms of keeping Martin Simmons on the book, having him do the main uh, storyline, whether it's five, six issues at a time, and then you can do these sort of deep dive uh, one-shots into the world of Department of Truth. So It's a brilliant idea. Yeah, it really, it really is. And these these last couple of issues have really sort of expanded the world, and it feels like that's maybe just started, uh, which is which is, which is is cool. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so yeah, Department of Truth number seven gets its uh, typical mention on our podcast. Uh Anytime you want to send checks through to us, Mr. Tinian, you work away. Uh, <laughs> a couple more just honorable mentions then as well. I know this is one Keith and I are both reading to Moon's number two, John Arcudi title. 
Um, yeah, and uh, art by Valerio Gian Giordano, uh, Gian Giordano, and this is the second issue of this. It's kind of a civil war, supernatural sort of a sort of a thing going on. Uh, Virgil, who is a Pawnee Indian man who was raised by white folks, uh, is now facing execution at the hands of his his friends in the Union Army. He's been arrested for the and charged for the murder of uh, Sergeant McBride, but he was the only one who could see that McBride wasn't human. Uh, there was there was something else going on there. So he's been called to hang. He's tied to a tree to his court martial, and meanwhile his his buddy, who seemed to turn on him pretty quick, Levon, uh, is telling Nurse Francis, who Virgil connected with last issue, what's happened. Uh, Virgil sort of waits for his fate and he, he's he's assaulted by he's still seeing things you know and you're kind of going is this guy is this guy mad is or, or is he actually is there something actually going on here so it's taking that supernatural turn and it's a really really engaging and entertaining story it's uh, mysterious it's mystic it's it's really moody um, brilliant dialogue and uh, I'm really interested in and not just the story, but also in Virgil, the character, and and the 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 past, and how he, I guess how his white upbringing has maybe subsumed his his pony roots. Uh, roots. Yeah, exactly. So, and it just looks great as well. The characters look great, and the details are great. I think I'm maybe going to go and read this again actually once we finish recording. <laughs> A lot of mystical um, stuff in it this month, which I thought was really interesting. A lot of sort of planetary style art and, you know, a higher plane style of art, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed it as well. It, it's it's definitely a title that I look forward to every time it comes out. I think that front cover actually is pretty superb with the sort of lightning strikes done into like the Confederate flag type style mm -hmm, and the red yeah. skies behind them. So, uh, yeah, strong, strong title. Uh, it's that time of the month again where Keith gets to tell me why I should read Decorum once it finally finishes. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, and it is, it's nearly finished. It's nine issues, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and this was issue seven. Um, so, it, I mean, the, the 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 end game has been has been set out, and uh, I, I think it I think it's going to exceed, you know, what it's all already set out. I mean, it's it's really hard to. You know, to, to sort of tell you, yeah, to, to summarize what's going on because it's a, it's a Hickman book, um, but the the it's been a, I guess it's been a fractured narrative up until now. But I think it, this issue is really has really focused it. Um, there's been uh, sort of side stories about universal eggs and AI, and then there was Neha's own story as well. You know, and and uh, brought into. You know, she's been brought into the sisterhood of man and trained as an assassin uh, by, uh, oh God, what do you even, I can't even remember what you call the main character. Um, but yeah, I think it's all sort of come together and it's 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 a crime thriller, Alan, really, you know, set against a an omniversal being prophecy. Um, yeah, uh, and it, it goes from the, the personal to the galactic. And uh, I yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conclusion. I think... Obviously, this is going to be one that we'll also read very well, maybe a wee bit more coherently whenever it's all released. Uh, Jonathan Hickman, who has a mind above all of ours, uh, it's, uh, you know, he, he he definitely challenges you to 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 think and to to look into what it is he's saying. But yeah, we're uh, we're definitely entering 
you know, as Doctor Strange says, we're we're in the end game now. Um, you know, the Church of the Singularity is threatening the lives of the Sisterhood, and the Sisterhood is all they're all targeting Neha because she's got a hold of the uh, the uh, Messiah that has come out of the 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 egg, and uh, makes no sense whenever I'm talking about it. But uh, <laughs> you know, makes it makes a lot of sense, uh, a lot more sense whenever you're uh, you're reading it. Yeah. And it looks great. Uh, Mike Mike Huddleston's art is unbelievable. Just so varied and uh, challenging. Like, yeah, it was a title that just I just had trouble following it after like three issues. So I just decided that my brain wasn't quite as high up there as Jonathan Hickman's, and I would still collect it all. I I do have it all upstairs, and once it finishes, I'll give it a go. Maybe get myself into the mind space where I'll maybe understand it a bit more because. Yeah, it was always it was always that split between the two different um two different storylines. It just it wasn't for me in that capacity. I remember when the solicits came out for it, it I think the solicit was literally just meet the most mild mannered assassin ever or something like that. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, that that's exactly and it's it's much that that assassin is is Imogen, Imogen Smith Morley. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, I mean it's the last couple of issues have really sort of developed it, you know, so I suppose to summarize, Neha, she's a courier turned assassin's apprentice. Her mentor is Imogen Smith Morley, the, who gives the, the book its title. There's a religious conflict between the Church of the Singularity and the Celestial Mothers. Uh, the Church showed up on the doorstep of the Sisterhood of Man, the elite order of assassins that both Neha and Imogen belong to, and the entire Sisterhood then are conscripted to find the celestial mothers and retrieve the egg that the mothers are protecting. Um, so so that all, that all makes it all makes perfect sense. Uh, so we get we, we now we have a bit of a, a moment where Neha finds finds the egg and and, and it's a so yeah so I'm interested to see how it ties up. Excellent. Well I hope it ends well and uh, then I will jump on board. But yeah, we're just going to finish off with one last honourable mention in terms of indie. And this again was neck and neck for my uh, pick of the week. And it was a just a wee small title that sort of came out of nowhere. It was one I highlighted a couple of months back in the previews book. Primarily because I'm starting to enjoy more and more Vault Comics titles. So this is one called Witchblood. And this was issue one. It's one of those creator-owned titles where they don't specify who the writer is and who the artist is. It simply is created by... So it's uh, up-and-coming creators, Matthew Ehrman and Lisa Sturl. Uh, it's coloured by Gab Contreras and lettered by Jim Campbell. Keith, this is a Western. Not a, what? Not, not only is it a Western, but it's a Western that has witches and vampires in it as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it might seem a bit odd at, at, at first, but it meshes together brilliantly because this is a really, really well-written first issue. So it is your main character you're following in it is a character called Yana. And uh, she's got her trusty bike, Ramblin' Rose, and she's got a, a raven, Boo, who follows her. And she's the, the witch of the title. She sort of comes into this small town, you know, trying to keep herself to herself. But a chance meeting with a vampire hunter who is waiting for these vampires to turn up in the small town means Johnny gets thrust into it. But then, of course, the vampires want uh, vampires want blood, but they want witch's blood because it'll make them even more powerful as well. Uh, the main character... The main, um, the main vampire, you know, it's impossible not to read their dialogue in Matthew McConaughey-type, Texas-type drawl. <laughs> he even looks a little bit like Matthew McConaughey as well. But yeah, just a really fun, colorful issue, really good world building, uh, really good demonstration of all the different powers of each character. 
and yeah just a really really class first issue it's it's a vault title so again it's one of those ones that you know low print runs stuff like that but uh yeah really recommend it if if you're just looking a, a good switch off your brain but good world building title as well so uh yeah that was Witchblood number one so we're gonna then move on to picks of the week so in terms of picks of the week uh no marvel this week what is going on but that's because the three we've got we've got two dc and one indie and believe it or not the the indie one is me i don't even have a dc pick of the week but yeah i'm gonna go with this week is shadecraft number one so this is written by joe henderson and art by lee garbett uh, it's a new image comics title from the creative team behind skyward so it's a title that gives new meaning to the idea being afraid of your own shadow Shadecraft it arrives with a lot of fanfare and expectations solely due to the fact that its live action rights were picked up by Netflix even before issue one arrived. I unfortunately saw the bad side of comic fandom as we always do as I'd ordered pretty big on the title because I was thinking it was going to be the kind of one that was going to pick up a little bit of steam and I was hoping to get people access to it at cover price once word spread. I put them on the website. And because there is no limit on our website for how many copies of something you can buy, one person bought up the entire stock, aside from one variant, a cover price, no doubt hoping to sell them down the line. Maybe I should put a cap on how many copies someone can buy, I don't know, but oh well, at least I've plenty of the second print already ordered, and uh, I think when it comes along I'll, I'll see if I can limit it. But So what's it about? So in Shadecraft, our main character is Zadie Lou, a teenager in high school. For years, she's always been jealous of her older brother's popularity and felt overshadowed, no matter what her achievements. And to top it all off, she has a fear of shadows, an irrational one. Right? Well, maybe not. I enjoyed the hell out of uh, Skyward, as I'd mentioned before, and I may have even indulged in an oversized hardcover collection recently, so I knew we'd be in safe hands here. The characters are instantly engaging, and Zadie is an interesting character from the off. You know, just witness her embarrassment when she thinks her best friend is coming on to her, and she reciprocates except he wasn't, so she runs off embarrassed into the night. Probably not the best idea for someone with issues with the dark, but we all felt that embarrassment as teenagers and can understand. We're only a couple of pages in at this point, but this is one stunning-looking book. You know, I find it slightly reductive to compare art styles sometimes, as every artist in the world of comics, I like to think, brings their own style. But it was hard not to think of the clean lines and great colouring from Saga, from Fiona Staples, when reading this title. You know, I can offer Lee Garbet on art and Antonio Fabella on colours no higher compliment than that. The world feels rich and lived in, but also has that small-town horror movie vibe and constant atmosphere. So, as Sadie walks home alone after her awkward encounter with her friend, she almost feels as if her shadow is watching her. As the reader, we can see something threatening behind her, but is it all just in her head? Is she indeed the crazy Sadie she anoints herself as? Well... Wonder no longer because that slow burn becomes an over-the-top attack as her shadows erupt into a massive figure that surrounds her until her mother turns on the porch light. We also get the information at this point that something happened to her golden boy brother. We're just not sure what. What's great here is that, you know, Zadie, she doesn't attempt to keep it all to herself like most characters in these types of stories. Even as she tells her friend in school the story of what happened on the porch, she doesn't care if it sounds like crazy. She has holes in her jacket from when the shadow attacked her as proof. She even says to her friend that she's talking about it because people, not just her, could be in danger. Again, she comes across really well as a sympathetic character we can root for. 
She even tries to move past the awkwardness of the misunderstood kiss from the night before by hugging Josh tightly in the lunch hall, proclaiming she's glad he's not dead. Despite the fantastical nature of her attack, you know, and the, her telling her friend this whole story, all her friend is more interested in is this kiss. Teenagers, huh? We then find out that Mr. Popular of the family, Zadie's brother Ricky, is in a coma, and she comes to his bedside to talk to him. We still don't know what has caused the coma just yet, and this is what was so great about the first issue. You know, it's establishing lots of characters and moving the story forward and establishing this world, but it's also laying breadcrumbs to be picked up upon later. She runs out of his room after her mother challenges her and screams that Ricky's never coming back. So this sort of leads to the end of the issue and confrontations in the spooky woods, shadow monsters, beautiful single and double page splash pages, Sadie losing her own shadow at one point, and even an emotional beat thrown in to finish the issue off. I won't reveal too much on it though because I really do think it deserves to be discovered on its own terms. One of the best issue ones this year for me and I can't recommend it enough. You know, do not sleep on this series. It's very different from most on the on the shelf right now and it's all the better for on it. Or all the better for it I should say. So just keep an eye out for those second prints folks before some bastard comes on our site and buys them all. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to our podcast. <laughs> But yeah, it, re- it really <laughs> bugged me because I, well, I always get an email that says what someone has bought and it came up, uh, Shadecraft. And then I looked at the amount they had spent and I just looked at the quantity and went, you are kidding me. I've seen it selling already online, 10, 15 pounds for the first print. And as you well know, that's not the kind of person I am that I'm going to stick them online for that price. I just want to have copies available for readers. So it's uh it's it's the never ending circle of the comic business, I guess, of you know, do you just want to sell everything or do you want to reach as many people as possible? So mm. but, puts you as well in a in a no win situation because if you go on and cancel his order, yeah, you'll be named and shamed online as the guy who didn't uphold Exactly. You know, it's it's kind of my own fault, you know, I maybe should have put a limit on it, but then again it's it's that never ending circle of the whole object is to sell all the copies you ordered yeah. in. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah. You, you just can't win sometimes, but yeah, when those second prints guys come in, I, I really can't recommend enough. Really, truly brilliant first issue. So sweet. So sweet. that was I'm, me. Uh, I'm in. That was me with Shadecraft number one. Uh, what about yourself, Keith? What was your pick of the week? My pick is a DC pick, Alan. Yes. The only DC pick of today, uh, and it is Flash number seven hundred and sixty-eight by Jeremy Adams, who was a relative unknown to me. He wrote a lot of the future state state stuff, uh, but I'm not sure beyond that. Brandon Peterson was the main uh, main artist who I know from his time on the Ultimates and Uncanny, it was an Uncanny X-Men issue, and uh, I think he did Strange as well, the miniseries. Um, uh, Marco Santucci and uh, David Lafuente. Um, so... This is the first issue post Joshua Williamson, the first uh, Infinite Frontier issue uh, post Death Metal. And it's got a cover that says Wally West returns as the fastest man alive. So, yep, that's me. I'm in. I'm hooked. Um, That's it. But Jeremy Adams has a lot to live up to after the standard set by Joshua Williamson's marathon four-year run consisting of 100 issues, three annuals, and a handful of Batman crossovers. And to some extent, that long run, or those long runs, are, are maybe a deterrent to new readers on getting on board with any series, in this case, The Flash. Though I would argue that 
Williamson's run did present a, a bunch of jumping on points throughout. But this issue is probably as close as we're getting to a jumping on point for the Flash, despite the fact there is a wee bit of background in here, a fair wee bit of background, especially around Wally West. It's all sort of presented in a rough and ready fashion, so it's there for you. So, I mean, I was ready to drop the Flash book along with the end of Williamson's run. And I wasn't terribly taken with the Flash Future State two-parter, but, you know, Adams was waving Wally West in front of me, and so I elected to stay put for a wee while, and I'm pretty glad I did, I have to say. And if this issue is going to go by, I'm likely to be staying put for the long run. There's another wee, uh, wee, wee Flash. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so pulling you, so... all the jokes out. That's the one. So Infinite Frontier number zero suggested that Barry was off to become the Flash for the Omniverse and that Wally will be the main Flash. So this starts in a fairly odd place with Wally asked to replace Barry on the Justice League and refusing because he's retiring from from being the Flash in order to be with his family. Now, Wally's had quite a time of it the past few years, returning to life at Rebirth um, without his family. Uh, they, they, they didn't return to life with him. They were, you know... Uh, he's cast as the emotionally unstable villain in, or antagonist, I guess, in Heroes of Crisis, having wiped out a handful of vulnerable heroes at the Sanctuary, including Roy Harper, uh, his fellow fellow Titan. Then to the redemptive flash forward and inheriting the dark parts of Dr. Manhattan and the Mobius chair in Death Metal. So you can sort of understand at this point why he's ready to retire. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not had a great time of it. So... He does, you know, he makes this announcement and the exceedingly well-drawn, though less than supportive Justice League, particularly Batman, most notably, you know, they they, they don't really, they're like, right, okay, well, Barry, you, you find a replacement then. They're not really, they're not really, they don't really seem to care about poor Wally and what Wally's up to. And in particular, given his mentorship of Roy Harper, who, who, who was killed as a result of, of Wally's actions at the Sanctuary, uh, the Green Arrow, uh, and the tension between Green Arrow and Barry is really nicely played out. Obviously, Green Arrow, Roy Harper's mentor, and Barry, uh, Wally's mentor. Uh, so that, that plays out very, very nicely with Green Arrow being a, a key part of the Justice League now. So Wally asks Barry to disconnect him from the Speed Force, and there's this brilliant race scene. You know, you've got them setting up to race and people all around them making comments. And, uh, you know, they're they're... Of course, I'm going to be yeah, the fastest man in the world, you know. But they need to they need to run really fast, as flashes always do, uh, you know, in order to try and disconnect Wally from the Speed Force. Wally has the strongest connection and understanding of the Speed Force of any of the flashes, even even Barry. But it all goes a bit pear shaped when Wally, rather than being disconnected from the Speed Force, is seemingly absorbed by it and disappears. And he awakes to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better, striving to put right what once were wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. And if that <laughs> sounds familiar to you, it's because that's exactly what Jeremy Adams is doing. He's, he's doing Quantum Leap with the Speed Force in place of the unknown force and Wally West in the place of Sam Beckett. So Wally finds himself inhabiting the body of... Uh, a caveman and what turns out to be a caveman speedster and you know he looks into the he looks into the water and he sees not his own reflection but the reflection of the caveman while we're seeing wally uh dressed in the caveman's clothes but we're seeing we're seeing wally in the same way as the deer saw sam but whenever sam looked at the mirror he saw the body he was inhabiting uh and and quantum leap that'll be a wee bit confusing if you're too young to 
understand what quantum leap is. Um, but yeah, so he's in the body of this caveman speedster. Something happens. The the speed force is uh, is upset, is unbalanced, and uh, the speed force seems to infect a, a velociraptor. So you've got you've got Wally the caveman speedster fleeing from a, a speedster dinosaur, a speedster velociraptor, uh, and it, it's sort of it, it's it's kind of mad, you know. And they're 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 not being shy about what they're doing here because whenever whenever Wally lands in the past, he utters Sam Beckett's classic catchphrase. You know, he sees the dinosaurs around him and just goes, "Oh boy," which uh, which I just I thought, okay, they're, they're they're being blatant about it, so I'm 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 happy with this. Um, so it looks like the the speed force is using Wally and that connection it has to Wally in order to repair something that has gone wrong with it. Uh, probably something that's been upset by death metal or or, or whatever, and uh, and do, and to do that, it seems to be leaping him around into different speedsters throughout the ages. At the end of the issue, he lands an impulse in the future, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, so it's, it's bouncing his consciousness into various speed force users throughout time in order to repair whatever damage it has it has suffered. Um, so yeah, and then you've got you've got Barry. You know, was kind of the man in the chair. Uh, him and Mr. Terrific and Green Arrow have been working in the present to try and find a way to communicate with with uh, Wally through the Speed Force. It's a wee bit woolly as to as to how it happens. Very comic book sciencey, but in that respect, then I guess Barry gets to become Al from Quantum Leap, and he's not a hologram. He's not appearing to him at least yet. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he's the, he's I guess the man in the chair advising him. So. So yeah, really interesting place to start. You know, Wally West is returning to the Flash. The first thing he does is retire and then disappear. Um, so yeah, I really, really, uh, really in, into it. Really enjoyed it. Um, we've got a great recap of Wally's life and his career, and it's enough that sort of you'd be comfortable going in here. I'll be really interested to see where this goes because. Oh, the, sorry, the other side is, is Barry has also, as a result of what happened to Wally, has lost his powers, as have the other Speed Force users in the present. Uh, so Wally seems to have all the Speed Force. Um, and that's interesting because in Future State, Barry was powerless and Wally was infected by, was, was being sim, um, possessed by famine and was was stealing everybody else's powers, everybody else's Speed Force. So yeah, um, really enjoyed it. Um it's a really lovely, colourful issue. Um, not scientifically accurate, because cavemen never existed alongside dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, I would have thought that would be a breaking point for you. <laughs> but uh, but where would the fun be? Where would the fun be? You know, if 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 in comic books they didn't. There's a Wally has a weird wee uh, Fred Flintstone yabba dabba do moment. That when, was wonderful. You know, yeah, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, Williamson's Williamson's epic set a high bar, and uh, and, a, and a long run as Flash is known for. But if this is any indication, I'm really looking forward to to what's to come. So uh, he's off to a running start, you could say. Oh, they just keep coming. They just keep <laughs> coming. Um, yeah, I I jumped on this as well, and I thought it was wonderful. I I did worry when I got to page two that uh, they'd missold it really badly because <laughs> I remember Keith's excitement being, well, they're using Wally West. Page two, 
yeah, I'm going to retire. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) really? Uh, But yeah, yeah, the the art style is fantastic the whole way through it. It's colorful. It's bright. It's, as you would imagine, you know, there's tons of great sort of motion art as well. Uh, There's some little cameos for other DC characters. I particularly enjoyed seeing Orn from Aquaman just Mm -hmm. out on the waves as they're trying to build up their speed. Uh, yeah, the pop culture references were great. Obviously, the Quantum Leap one, the Flintstones, where Wally's just sort of like, well, I got to try. Just slides <laughs> down the back and goes, yabba dabba do. The kids are going to be so jealous. What One thing I will say as well, which I really liked, and I didn't know if I was going to, was so it was a $5 price point for this one, but mm-hmm. it was all the flash. It wasn't, here's 30 pages of flash and here's a 10-issue backup story or a 10-page backup story. It was all flash, and I was really happy about that because I was really enjoying it, and I didn't want it at the end, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah, and I have to say, I have not seen the Justice League drawn quite as well uh, in in quite some time. Um, they the I, I mean, I thought they all look they all look great, even if they were a wee bit cold towards uh towards Wally. Um, but. The, the funny thing was the colors really made Superman's red shorts stand out. And I think we, we just got used to not really seeing them. And I was like, whoa, those are really in your face. <laughs> you were looking at Superman's crotch the whole time is what you're saying? Well, yeah, well, yeah you, you couldn't miss it. You, you couldn't miss it, Alan. Yeah, even, of course, there had to be references to Jurassic Park as well. He's holding off a raptor at one point. He's saying, you were so much cooler in the movies. I find it interesting as well that they took the Speed Force off all the other speedsters because it it instantly says we're only interested in Wally West right now. It's not a case of Wally's out of time, but Barry can take over in the meantime. You know, he doesn't have his powers. So, yeah, really strong start. And I said this to Keith before coming on. It's probably the most colorful. It's probably the closest to a Marvel book, a DC book, has been in a long time, I would say, in terms of that four color style. Def- and, and the flash really suits that yeah. as well i mean he's uh you know he, he absolutely and i mean without being um, without being snarky it was also a really nice palate cleanser after the horrible flash in the justice league movies <laughs> both of them uh, regardless of the version uh so it was nice to see nice nice to see the actual flash uh back I'm not going to jump on that. Uh, so that <laughs> I was going to say, there's there's the weekly snacks, Zach Snyder day. Tick. Yep. Oh, well. So, case pick of the week then. So, the Flash 768. So we finish off, and uh, this is where Paddy's going to have to slightly correct Keith because when he uh, introduced Flash, he said, "I'm the only one that's picked DC this week." But alas, oh, my, my my apologies, alas, my apologies. Not You're only... not the only person that has to apologize, Keith. Uh, when I was reading out my numbers, I too included Hellblazer as an indie for some reason. <sighs> See, that there must be are. what it is. Well, you've just gave away what your pick of the week is. Go yes. ahead, take it away. Spoilers. Uh, John Constantine Hellblazer Volume Two: The Best Version of You. Uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this since I finished Volume 1. I know Keith and you both, your, everybody actually, had spoke very highly of it on the, the podcasts when I started listening. I actually picked up Volume 1 just to read the, the Mermaid story that, that Keith, you know, I think he had it as his pick of the week. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was furious that it ended just before that issue. <laughs> uh, so Volume 2 picks up with covers Issue 7 to Issue 12. Uh, written by Simon Spurrier. Art is split across two artists, Aaron Campbell and Matthias Baraga, and art by Jordi Belair. Yeah, so it starts off the two-parter I mentioned there is called Britannia Rule 
Petrania rules the waves. Uh, this is a two-parter of a, a fisherman who catches a mermaid, and with said mermaid is able to catch, you know, all the good fish from the French who are, you know, mentioned as, as stealing their fish, twisting the tail, is that, you know, he soon grows weary of his, his girlfriend. You know, he gets this newfound fame. He gets, you know, his choice of women, and, and she kind of sees it all and sticks by him. We jump on then to... I don't want to say a controversial uh, issue, the favourite, about uh, a member of the royal family who seems to like his girls on the the younger side of things or the, the burly legal side of things. And this member of the royal family then wants to gain favour with the Queen. Everybody knows the Queen loves horses, so he makes a deal with the, the older John Constantine. And, yeah, to brutal thing there of a just like a, a deformed unicorn almost a demon unicorn mm-hmm. yeah. rips it rips out of the horse's horse's belly uh on the end to the wake-up call which for me was maybe the weakest issue now that's not a bad thing because the entire book was brilliant you know it, for me it just was probably the least enjoyable issue this is the one where john's in like the dreamlike state with the older version of himself uh, I found myself maybe skipping through it a wee bit, not overly indulgent in it, but it more than made up with the two-part finale, the, the Scapulard Isle, which uh, basically they have a giant under the Houses of Parliament. Uh, all the characters were kind of introduced to throughout not just the second volume, but even the first volume. They all make a, a triumphant return, and it ends with the the bombshell that the the mute kid Noah that we're introduced to in volume one is actually the son of of John Constantine. Uh, I fully agree with Keith that how this got cancelled is I, I, I just it's don't a know. sin. It's a bloody it, sin. It, it is. It's <laughs> it's it's such a strong strong series. You know, as I said, there was maybe one one dip over the whole two volumes, but other than that, it was. It was fantastic. My, my only negative that I would take away from this book is I wish Aaron Campbell had have done all the art. The The issue that was drawn by Matthias Baraga was, you know, when you're used to an art style and then there's just that slight change and it, it, it can throw you off, especially kind of in an ongoing arc. It should always kind of be, you know, to go back to the Department of Truth. Six issues drawn by Martin Simmons. I don't know why they changed artists for an issue. What was but, the what was the issue that uh, Bergara drew? Uh, he drew the favorite. Favorite, aye, aye. Well, at least it was a one sh- a one shot. Yeah. Story like it was a you know rather than a, yeah yeah exactly. So, I mean yeah I mean this Sice Barrier just was confirmed as one of the best writers in the business for me with this, uh, and I'm really enjoying his Black Knight now as a as a result the King and Black tie in and the Curse of the Emily Blade mini series. This I mean this was obviously. Uh, largely inspired by Sice Barrier's, uh, I guess, frustration or feelings around around uh, Brexit and, and and rising. Is he English? Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, around you know the rising toxic British nationalism and all of that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, he just he delivers the he delivers it really well through Constantine. I I think it's a perfect twelve issues. Perfect twelve issues. Is the early volumes just as good? You know, you've got volume one there, Original Sins, Family Man, Dangerous Habits. Are they all as good as this? 
there's tons of great Hellblazer runs throughout time, and you Hellblazer's always attracted some of the best writers in the industry. You know, you've had Neil Gaiman writing Hellblazer, you've had Sean Murphy, you've had Garth Ennis, you've had loads of top level creators. It it varies in quality from volume to volume, but I think that's true of anything that is as long running as that. You know, there's there's runs that'll be better than than others, but but those John Constantine Hellblazer volumes you speak of that kick off with original sins, those are big big sellers in the store. We, we consistently just try and get those back on the shelf, back on the shelf, because they're always good, thick volumes as well. And I don't know what it is, just poor old John Constantine just can't catch a break, because with this run specifically, it was consistently the highest-rated comic every week it came out. The trade paperback sales for Volume 1 weren't even taken into account when they cancelled it. Yeah, I still find that really strange. It's, it's one thing to cancel a series, because you know maybe single-issue sales aren't great, but you know, the mm. trade paperback market has gotten bigger and bigger in the last few years. You know, traditional bookstores are carrying trades. Comic stores are allocating more space to trades. We can't keep it in stock when it comes in. Of course, we can only speak about our own store. But it always came across to me as such a silly decision. And maybe there was more to it than just sales. But, you know, as Keith says, you've got this perfect 12 issues together. So, you know, that's that's about all we can console ourselves with. And Keith can also console himself that Spurrier then made the jump to mortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's just he's a great he's just a great a great story master like he really is um and i just think he did he just did wonderful work and, and then the whole thing at the end you know with the the whole the whole series being a plot by the older john constantine uh who was you know pushing everybody and around the board like chess pieces in order to to get what he needed uh to to get what he needed from 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 john uh, yeah, great, great stuff, great stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here. It's interesting. I'm, uh, I'm watching The Crown at the minute. Uh, not a not a show you might associate me with, uh, but it's uh, it's it's bloody it's bloody good. It's isn't bloody it, good. Isn't it? You know what? I I started I started watching it and I've stopped. But just the reason I stopped is, see, when I'm watching it, I'm really enjoying it. Sort of like it's like a big long history lesson, but. There's just nothing there that, that grabs me to go back. You know, I could go up now and I could put an episode on and I could easily watch three or four episodes, but I'll probably go up and watch something else instead. I think that's the best way of describing mm-hmm. it. But uh, but yeah, I guess it just uh, it just links to that with the the whole idea of, of Britishness and there's a, there's some royal family stuff in there as well. But yeah. yeah, great great choice, great choice. I think if you listen back to the podcasts, there wasn't one issue of this that wasn't either an honourable mention or a pick of the week. And you can take that to the bank, because believe me, that is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we made sure to order in plenty of this volume, and we've got the first volume in store as well for when we get back open. The Hellblazer will be ready and waiting. So that was Paddy's pick of the week then, which was Hellblazer Volume 2, the end of Simon Spurrier and Aaron Campbell's run. So we'll finish off the same way we do every time by just uh, picking three titles from this week's releases that we're looking forward to most. Uh, first up for me is, as Paddy calls it, my porn book, uh, which Softcore. is which is uh, <laughs> Casual Fling. So this is Casual Fling number three of four. Just really enjoying this title. This might actually go top of the list for me just because of how issue two ended. Uh, that little uh, note about the the cuckolded husband, you know, basically going to find his sensei. I think things are about to get very interesting in this. So it's written by Jason Starr and art by Dalibor Talahitch and Marco Lesko. So looking forward to that. Uh, it wouldn't be a 
top three of mine if it did not include the newest issue of Batman. So now that it's going monthly, I'm being starved a little bit more. But then again, there are about 95 different Batman series coming out every month. So I'm all good. But this is obviously continuing James Tinian and Jorge Jimenez's run. So the blurb for this one is tensions are sky high in Gotham City following the attack on Arkham Asylum and public opinion and unrest are starting to boil over. The Dark Knight has his hands full, juggling the investigation of the reappearance of an old enemy and the rise of a new gang in Gotham called the Unsanity Collective. Gotham City is getting more dangerous by the minutes. So looking forward to that. And then my last pick would be a brand new number one from Image Comics from the Doomsday Clock team of Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. So hopefully it being an indie series, it will not be beset by the same amount of delays that Doomsday Clock had. But we've ordered in loads of this, so if you're not on it just yet and you like the sound of it, just just give us a bell. Uh, so the blurb for this is, Who are the scavengers of a dying Earth? Geiger is set in the years since a nuclear war ravaged the planet, desperate outlaws battle for survival in a world of radioactive chaos. Out past the poison wasteland lives a man even the nightcrawlers and organ people fear. Some name him Joe, Joe Glow, others call him the Meltdown Man, but his name is Geiger. So really looking forward <laughs> to that as well. Uh, what are your three top picks then, Keith? Uh, for me, Swamp Thing number two from uh, Ram V as the writer and Mike Perkins as the artist. So it's a, a well-written and good-looking book. Um, the Trials of uh, Levi Camel, uh, the new avatar of the green, grow darker as the pale wanderer's bloody spree leaves a trail of death across the Sonoran Desert. While his lessons begin to show Levi the true nature of what he is becoming, and it's Jennifer Reese who show Levi that he must contend with his past and his trauma in order to bring the murder, in order to stop the murderous wraith. Will Levi Kemmel uh, grasp his newfound place in the world as the Swamp Thing, or will his fears consume him before the new Avatar can even take root? Uh, so that's Swamp Thing number two. Uh, I am looking forward to the Last Witch by Connor McCreary and VV Glass. Uh, Sorsha, Bram and Nan are on the trail of the third sister and the wind witch, Bab uh, but a chance encounter with a mischievous and charming boy named Hugh is about to change their lives forever and Sorsha may be more powerful than anyone imagined uh, it's the fourth issue of that I'm really enjoying that series and lastly uh, I think I am looking forward to Nocterra number two uh, by Scott Snyder and Tony S. Daniel. Full Throttle Dark Part 2. Val brings her passengers to their first truck stop, the Neon Grove, but her brother, her brother, uh, but with her brother getting worse by the minute and the dark forces in hot pursuit, our ferryman finds herself faced with a grave decision. Really enjoyed the tone and the mood of that first issue, so really looking forward to the second. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get an advance read of that uh, due to setting up relations with uh, Mr. Snyder, and it was fantastic. Highly recommend reading that issue to the soundtrack of The Thing. Okay, but, uh, and I, I wondered why you hadn't chosen it yourself, and that is clearly why. That is the only reason, <laughs> believe me. Otherwise, it would have been in the top three. Uh, what about yourself, Paddy? What are your top three? Uh, I've went to start off with, with a Donny Cates double. We have the last issue, the finale of The King in Black. Uh, along with Venom 34, which I believe is the second last issue of Venom. Uh, and then, of course, the return of Seven Secrets, number seven. Another case has been opened, and with it, a new path revealed. Casper and the remaining members of the Order have managed to escape to the world of Fury, but are they truly safe? Cannot wait. It's only been a couple of months, hasn't it, since we had 
yeah. seven sacred tissue but there's so much quality this week i mean i think this is out of everything so far this is the week where i've i've looked at it and went jesus but i didn't mention silver coin or mm-hmm. you know so much other crackers coming out this week Don't. yeah it's, it's a it's a it's a big week uh, a big late week but there you are don't you try and change the rules here, Paddy. You've got three picks and that's it. Don't, don't <laughs> be put... This. Don't Colin, be... put us out of our misery. Were all our picks on the invoice this week? All the picks are on the invoice. I check. That's the first thing I check when I see what you pick, actually. So it is just to make sure so I don't have to break it to you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there is, there's a lot of quality this week. Uh, again, just outside of, those, uh, outside of those nine as well. So yeah, so that is going to do it for us this week. So that was us going through the best of the titles from the 31st of March. And also chatting about what we're looking forward to most for this new comic book day. Though it will be slightly delayed due to the Easter holidays, of course. So, pleasure as always chatting with you gentlemen. Uh, it's always nice to finish a pod and it's still bright outside. So, uh, <laughs> enjoy the rest of your evening and I will no doubt see you both soon. Good night. Yes, good night everyone. <laughs>